0: This is dmou destination marketing organization university the dmo sectors podcast and i'm your host bill geist dmou is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level the format for our conversations on dmou is elegantly simple it's three questions and a bonus round and today's episode is sponsored by our friends at SearchWide global the premier executive search firm in the dmo space Mike Gamble and his team uncover the talent out there that isn't looking, meaning that clients get a far richer candidate base from which to choose than just placing ads in publications and online. And their client satisfaction rate across multiple metrics is an amazing 98%. If you're looking for a new opportunity or looking for the potential candidate, call them. You can learn more at searchwideglobal.com. And now it's on to our show. Our guest today is Erica Sears, raised in the hand-me-down wetsuits, life jackets, and rubber boots of her two brothers in the waters of the Nestica River on the Oregon coast. Her international studies degree paved the way for her to research the effects of globalization in Peru on indigenous communities, count by catch on the Ecuadorian coast, teach English in Spain and France, and document Oregon timber industry practices on the coastal mountain range. Erica currently works for the Oregon Coast Visitor Association as the deputy director for all 363 miles of Oregon coastline. She works with land management agencies, local businesses, nonprofits, government entities, and citizens to inspire travel and strengthen collaboration to create and steward a sustainable coastal economy. In her free time, she is the host of the Big Tourism Podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, connecting with tourism professionals worldwide. Erica, welcome to DMOU. Thanks so much for having me on today. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. And honestly, the bio I just read does not do justice. So for our listeners, I encourage you when the show is over, go to visit. TheOregonCoast.com and find her real bio because you've lived more in a single year than most of us do in a lifetime. So it's a, it's a life well lived and uh, congratulations.
1: Thank you. I think it has been, it's been a good time so far.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so far. Yeah. So this is a podcast that looks for the unique and the innovative ways of addressing destination marketing. I can honestly say this is probably the most unique approach we've seen. Why? It's why we wanted to get you on the show. As only those who are possessed with an insane political agenda can challenge that there's such a thing as climate change, your DMO is addressing it head on. So first question, DMOs are facing a dizzying array of issues far beyond what most of us signed up for, things like social justice, pandemic relief, workforce development, transportation issues, community alignment, and environmental sustainability. The Oregon Coast Visitor Association is emerging as an industry leader You've hired a climate change consultant and you are identifying climate change as front and center in your agenda. So tell us how your DMO began down this path to address climate change in your destination and around the world.
1: Yeah, I get asked this and I always am like, where do we begin? But officially, (laughs) (laughs) the Oregon Coast Visitors Association, or ACFA as we call it for short, Um, We've identified as a destination management organization for a number of years. I've been here for almost four years, and it's always been that way. So, you know, taking a sidestep from just solely marketing and doing other types of initiatives is not out of our normal scope of work. Our mission is to inspire travel and strengthen collaboration to create and steward a sustainable coastal economy. So um, there's a lot of things that can be that encompasses. And I feel like you just listed off a lot of things that we've all, all, DMO has been talking about social justice, pandemic relief, the workforce, transportation. There's so many things a DMO can be working on, which I feel like can be overwhelming, but it's also very exciting. And so I think that a lot of these conversations have really bloomed during this pandemic, especially starting in 2020 we saw here on the Oregon coast DMOs that are traditional marketing organizations that their lane is to invite and inspire people to their destinations they had handmade signs up that said do not come here yeah right like at right. the very beginning of covid and so that was my first like whoa we have to shift sometimes what our role is to remain relevant to our communities and to our visitors so To every DMO out there listening, you're doing a good job. It's been a wild couple of years. But in this pandemic, a lot of things have shifted for our organization. And one of those things is climate change. So going back to 2020, um, we had the Labor Day wildfires here in Oregon, which were massive. It was all over the news. And wildfires aren't unique to Oregon. We seem to be having them more and more every summer, but those wildfires actually hit the Oregon coast and that never happens. I think the last time that happened was like a hundred years ago. So Labor Day, we have this crazy wildfire um, in two parts of the coast and people were evacuating. And I think just that wildfire is always identified as one of the impacts of climate change was just very front and center to our communities and to our visitors here. So we have that going on. I'm going to set a really beautiful stage (laughs) of depression. (laughs) So we have wildfires. Then the global pandemic itself, you know, obviously affected us, the tourism industry in a number of ways. But one of the ways that I think isn't often talked about is how it affected our food systems on the coast. So specifically on the Oregon coast, the pandemic put a halt to the nearly $800 million spent by coastal visitors on food each year which of course affects our local restaurants, retailers, and producers in our region. So we had that going on. We had supply chain disruptions, which I think we're still facing. I remember at one time there were like no plastic spoons to be found for one of our cities. Like That was just a really specific example, but we see like wow we're really
0: which might be a good thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, and I think it has made business owners and locals and visitors very aware of our supply chain because we can get all the food, we can get all of these, you know, plastic forks or whatever we need for our restaurants. They weren't showing up. And so we're like, wow, we live in the Oregon Coast region. We have dairy farms, we have fishermen, we have hunters. Like we have a lot of resources here and yet it felt like we didn't have enough resources to provide those experience to our visitors because of those disruptions. So all that, that's kind of setting the scene of like things that were going on. And then the way our destination management organization works is we're a really small team. Uh, right now we have four full-time staff, hopefully having five here pretty soon, but we have to be very strategic and efficient in how we do our work over two-year plans um, so that we're spending our money wisely and spending our staff time wisely. And one of the ways we do that is um, a stakeholder survey, which comes out every other year. And it is really long. And the first thing that people write in the open-ended question was like, this survey is too long, (laughs) which is my favorite thing because they made it to the end. (laughs) And I was really surprised that when we did that survey in 2020, that when we got the results that winter, um, so moving into 2021, climate change was being identified as a need or a priority for both short-term and long-term tourism planning. And it really shocked me because we don't really talk about climate change in tourism. I had never even brought it up. Like we don't bring it up in town hall meetings or community meetings. So the fact that we had people identifying that as a big need and in the open-ended questions saying, Hey, I'm really worried about climate change. It was really interesting. It really triggered us to say like, what would climate change look like for our organization?" are we already doing it? Like we have been doing some things that are, you know, positive for the environment, but yeah, it was really exciting. And so we had that going on. We're working on supply chain and seafood infrastructure. And then um, we got contacted by the travel foundation And they were like, hey, we have this initiative going on called Tourism Declares a Climate Emergency, where we have all these different international organizations kind of broken up by group types. So you have like DMOs and you have tour operators and and businesses and lodging. There's a destination group. And these different people from around the world are trying to figure out how tourism should be working in climate action. Do you want to be a part of it? And I was like, no, (laughs) I have no idea how to do that. I don't think we have the staff time, but we thought about it. We had a lot of, we talked within our staff, we brought it to the board. I had a lot of one-on-ones with the board. And ultimately we decided like, yeah, let's be a part of this. Let's officially commit ourselves to climate action in our region. So that was kind of the scene in which, you know, the setting in which we identified this and started working on this in late 2020, early 2021.
0: But interesting, you had community stakeholders that were the proverbial canary in the coal mine, that they said, we're feeling climate change. And you listed some of the issues with supply chain and fisheries that we're not producing. In some cases, a destination or even a business faced with that would say, okay, we're going to either reduce hours, we're going to reduce days, we're going to reduce production and kind of back away. I, my daughter's fiance is one of the top restaurateurs here in Madison. And even when the mandate that you could only seat 50% of your um, restaurant was lifted, he stayed at 50% because he didn't have the resources to go full out like he was in 2019. So you went the other way rather than say, okay, well, we're just going to shut down, and we're, we're not going to welcome as many visitors. You decided to double down and honestly, hiring a consultant that is your climate change expert to help guide the process is taking the proverbial bull by the horns. <sighs>
1: Yeah. I feel so lucky. It's, you know, I've had a lot of people be like, wow, you have your own climate scientist. (laughs) Um, And so her name is Patty Martin and she's incredible. And so a lot of times I think why we can be effective as a DMO is, again, we have a small team and we identify the things that we know and the things that we don't know. And I am not a climate scientist, and I was like, I cannot be the person that is just single handedly putting this together. Like, let's get someone that can look at the data for Oregon that can help us identify actions that actually will have an impact. So yes, it's been incredible having you know her and her support and just having her mind on this project too, because that's not usually what DMOS do. That's not usually our um, skill set. So yeah, it's been really interesting. And I think yeah. the other thing when we're talking about stakeholders. Is you know, we're looking at our tourism stakeholders, which are usually nonprofits, business owners, local community leaders. But then once we started working in this space, you know, of course, you start seeing this everywhere. And so we actually had other industries on the Oregon Coast that were already doing this work and have been doing this work for years. So we have like the oyster industry was had a thousands and thousands of die-offs due to ocean acidification in the early 2000s. So that industry has already been dealing with the effects of a warming ocean for a long time. And they've been adapting to that by different types of technology. There's like the West Coast crabbers. They tried to sue the fossil fuel industry a few years ago because they're seeing the effects of climate change on their product We've had articles come out about our fishing communities, like in Newport, Oregon, about them saying that, you know, these fishermen that have been there since the 80s saying that their number one concern is climate change, the way it's affecting their seasons and their catch. And there's some work happening too with like the dairy industry. So it was interesting because at first I was like, wow, we're going to be the first industry that's going to look at this. And I was like, actually, tourism's kind of late to the game. And if you listen to any of the Tourism Declares Travel Foundation webinars, There is Jeremy Smith, who is sort of the co-founder of that movement, and he noticed that, too. You had all these industries worldwide that are identifying climate change as an issue and then committing to working on it together. So they're starting to get industry alignments and advocacy and plans and still the tourism industry. It's like, where are we at? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's been interesting to see at at a community level, different industries, which, of course, are part of the tourism industry, are already working on this, and that's also happening worldwide.
0: And maybe that's the biggest takeaway of this conversation is that I think so many DMOs may look at climate change and their role and say, That is too big of an elephant for me to even take a bite out of. And yet, there's a whole bunch of work that's out there that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Right. Okay. And
1: that was what we had originally, you know, when we started off when we first hired Patty on. That's what I said. I was like, I do not want to reinvent the wheel <laughs> at all. What we started with was just interviewing different state and federal agencies in Oregon, you know, like Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, Climate Solutions, and saying, hey, what do you have going on that we can just click into? How does your work also benefit our tourism industry and local businesses it's for that exact reason? Because we didn't want to reinvent the wheel.
0: Yeah. So I have a real issue with standardization and cookie-cutter approaches to what we do in destination marketing, and you have found exactly the same issue in measuring climate footprints, because you have to understand the problem before you can begin to address it. And you have found that the climate footprint is different in every single community. So. First, I'm saying this is great because you got all these people who are going to help and are already leading the charge. But now this is not going to be easy for any of us because we can't necessarily rely on the work that you're doing or that others have done because we have to look at our own communities, right? Tell us how you're addressing the issue of uniqueness from one destination to the next and how you will uniquely and differently address climate change.
1: Yeah. So this is probably the biggest hang up or opportunity um, for DMOs or destinations that are taking on this work. And we're seeing this at an international level. So that tourism declares community every month, there's a meeting for destinations that are working in this space. And so we attend that meeting and it's really interesting to hear what valencia spain is doing what sweden's doing what scotland is doing but as a destination this carbon footprint is one of the hardest pieces of it and there will be no cookie cutter i also do not like standardization (laughs) just because everyone's team dynamics are even different but um just to give you an example of, of how and why this will look different so for the state of oregon Oregon became the eighth state in the US to enact a renewable energy commitment into law. Cool. So by 2040, our state will have 100% clean electricity. So when we're looking at actions, I would imagine that any destination in Oregon probably will not be prioritizing actions like reducing your energy, reducing your electricity, although it's important that electricity is technically clean and has zero greenhouse gas emissions. So that's an action that wouldn't have a huge impact on um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions in Oregon. Yeah. However, if you are not in the state of Oregon and you're not one of those other eight states, your action plan will look very different because of just the political climate in which your destination takes place in. And so that's going to be a big first step is understanding What's going on in my state? What goes on in my county? Is there already a climate action plan? I think that alone will just be one big differentiator, if that's even a word, between these different states. Additionally, what was exciting too when we started this work is that in 2020, quite the year here in Oregon, there was additionally an executive order by our governor, which essentially says that all state agencies have to take actions to reduce and regulate greenhouse gas emissions. So again, that's why we started interviewing all the state agencies, because that's like Department of Forestry, Department of Transportation, all these organizations and agencies are creating climate action plans. And so I'm there like, hey, where do tourism businesses fit into this? Do they not fit into this? Why not? How can we get more resources? That will look different in every state, but that, you know, in Oregon, at least that will give us a foundation for different destinations that may want to work on this. And then additionally... You'll see that I think that DMOs that are city specific that are tied within city government may have an easier time measuring their carbon footprint because maybe their city is already doing that or they have really well-defined boundaries so they can click into their utilities and they can measure they only have X amount of entrances and transportation in their town. A really hard thing for us in our region is that we are, like you mentioned, 363 miles of coastline. We have seven coastal counties and two of which we only have partial county. So it's a little bit harder for us to measure our carbon footprint of tourism because it's just a lot of moving pieces. And again, we're a small team. And so that's been one of the questions we've been trying to tackle. You know, if our state tourism agency ends up taking this on, will they measure the carbon footprint of tourism? Is it really our role as this small nonprofit to measure the tourism industry for our region? Maybe not. But then, of course, in our plan, how do we measure that we're actually doing the work, that we're actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions? And so we're looking at, you know, what does it look like to invest in EV charging stations? Is there a way to measure the amount of clean miles we just put on the scenic byway on Highway 101? But again, you're, you're spot on that this is going to be very complicated. I think a destination that's done this really well is visit Valencia, So I'd recommend anybody check them out. They did. I think they're one of the first destinations in the world that actually did measure the carbon footprint of tourism in their destination. And of course, the results are super interesting. A large part of the emissions are people traveling to their destination. But once they're in the destination, a lot of people are using transit. Yeah. Um, so again, it it all looks a little different and Something else I've heard, which I think is really relevant, is that a lot of DMOs have a specific way they have to use their funding, like maybe a 70-30 split with marketing, mm-hmm. where they yep. legally have to use the money in a certain way. And so they might say, hey, I have to use 70% of my funds on marketing. So where does climate action fit in? Is I think there's also a big part of identifying what does your organization do? So if you really only do marketing, is there a way that you can market climate-friendly trips in your destination or businesses that are doing the right thing, I think we all have a different role to play. And that was one of our big um, lessons learned at the beginning of this process was actually taking a step back and saying, okay, what do we actually do as a DMO in our region? Because at first we were like, what if we helped every single business measure their carbon footprint? We were like, there's no way we could ever do that. (laughs) So we had to go back to the drawing board. So that will be a big part of it. Understanding your political climate, what kind of infrastructure and resources you already have, and then identifying what is your role as a DMO and how can that role also support climate action.
0: And you make an interesting point about the fact that so much of the impact comes from coming to or... Leaving our destination, not so much in our destination. I just saw an article. A friend of mine, George Zugros from the Wisconsin Arts Board, who is a past guest of DMOU, and you should check out his uh, his episode on arts and creativity. But he sent me a, a piece today that said that cruise ships generate, on average, twenty one thousand gallons of sewage per day per vessel, and most of that goes into the ocean. Wow! So. You know, we think about climate change and we think about, yeah, wildfires and we think about uh, tornadoes and and major weather events. But I think especially for you and for any destination on a coastline, it comes down to, you know, rising water levels. How do you deal with something like that? I mean, I I guess the, the root of the question is, is how do you find what's most meaningful to the community in which you are working to say, this is the issue, and uh, let me give you a, a quick example. When we were here in Madison trying to pass a referendum to build our convention center, you know, they'd send me in to talk to business groups, but we would send Karen in to flip residents. And she had this amazing ability to say, remember what downtown was like when we were kids? And she'd evoke this amazing warmth of, oh, yeah, it was so cool during the holidays and the lights. And, you know, everybody was, you know, this was the place to be. And it's not like that anymore. Sucks downtown. And that kind of moved people to say, oh, well, if the convention center is going to get us back to that place, then maybe we should vote for the convention center. So I guess the root of the question is, what is it that you can inspire people in your community to say it is rising water levels or it is you know, vanishing coastline, it's wildfires, it's how do you get the support from the community to support what you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's a a great question. And I think it's something that we've learned over the past year is that not that we've tried to scare people, but that people really want more inspirational messaging, just like in marketing, right, for Mm -hmm. a visitor. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't really help us to say hey, if you guys don't do this, then we're going to lose this town because it's going to go underwater. Or do you guys want more wildfires? That's where we're headed. And (laughs) I'm like pretty like type A, like I just want to work and to say the truth and get through it. But what it comes down to is people need that inspirational why should we be working on this? And so what I found is that just climate action alone doesn't seem like that's enough to inspire people or to make them think, yes, count me in. The things that seem to make sense to people are the co-benefits of climate action. So one example is one of our traditional industries here is seafood and people identify with our local fishermen. We're really proud of our local fleets. But a lot of times, like the the amount of money that our local producers are getting is not as much as it could be because of the way our distribution systems are set up. Because sometimes our, you know, Dungeness crab is sent to China to be processed and then sent back to us. There's a lot of restaurants on the coast where it is cheaper for them to get seafood from Washington or Alaska than the Oregon coast.
0: Wow.
1: And so um, we recently got a federal grant for like $735,000 to work on the seafood infrastructure. So that's providing more infrastructure for processing and distribution in our region. That's technical assistance for small and startups, seafood companies and so on the on the outside, it might be like, well, what does this have to do with climate change? But then part of that is reducing our carbon footprint of that industry and then also making it more readily available for visitors and locals alike. And that is one example of people are like, yes, we will support that work. We want to support our local fishermen. We want our restaurants to have local food. So this seems to really tie at people's heartstrings. Like another example is on our northern part of our coast, which is from Astoria to North. Go in. we're within a, like a two-hour day trip of Portland, Oregon. Um, and because of that, we seem to have a lot of over-tourism or destination management issues. So people are concerned about transportation. There's a lot of congestion, not enough parking. There seems to be a lot more trash during the summer. You know, some of those typical challenges like that in a destination management zone. But then again, there's like that co-benefit of climate change is, wow, if we could invest in public transportation from Portland to the coast that is frequent and people actually use it, we will reduce some of these pinch points of destination management, but also reduce the carbon footprint of people coming and traveling within our destination. And so that has been a big learning curve for me is understanding, okay, how do we actually talk about the co-benefits? And it seems to be those things, like, yes, we want to have less congestion in our town. Like, that seems to be more inspiring than me saying, like, let's save the earth.
0: (laughs) Um, You know,
1: but it's really tying into what people need need now and what they are already working on.
0: So last question. You're on the verge of launching a 10-year plan in the weeks ahead. How will you engage the community to join the initiative? and make this all happen. And then how will this impact your destination marketing going forward? Because it has to have some impact on the message that you're providing.
1: Yeah, so I would say that this process has been a little bit upside down for how we usually do it. So usually you have like those stakeholder surveys, which I mentioned. Then we have a lot of maybe community meetings or action teams that work on developing these projects like mountain bike trails or a food trail. And then we can scale it up along the coast. And this time it was a little bit upside down because we got that stakeholder survey. We saw the political climate in our state right now. And we said, hey, we're going to work on the plan first. And then we're going to bring it back down to our stakeholders. And one of the reasons we did that is because when I have had this conversation with people in in our region and said, hey, we're working on climate change and tourism, there's a lot of solutions. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of actions we can be doing. And it's so different. So I've had one person be like, Hey, you guys should really focus on, you know, wildlife etiquette and keep dogs on leashes. So they're not chasing our coastal birds because it's affecting the, the local habitat and the ecosystem. I have someone else that says, "Hey, okay, great. Does that mean we need to switch to paper straws?" A business will say, okay, then what brand of dryer should I use? Yeah. So as you can imagine, like there are so many different solutions that for a small DMO like us, we kind of had to go plan first to create those guardrails of these are the type of actions that we want to help support, invest in, or provide resources to so that our project is efficient and that it can live beyond any of our current staff or board in case people, you know, change careers.
0: Yeah. Makes
1: sense. So that was kind of why it was upside down. So that's where we're at right now is we have a working draft of our climate action plan. Then the next step, I think um, we're still working on this, but creating focus groups of different types of businesses. So Maybe having a lodging group or a vacation rental group, restaurant group, kind of walk through our plan and ask them some questions like maybe this is like how an ideal climate friendly restaurant does things. What's preventing you from doing this or are you doing this? And so we're hoping to identify any gaps that we may have in our plan, as well as identify local champions that are already doing this work and possibly creating some type of network of climate friendly Businesses and partners on the coast. So that's one of the exciting next steps. I think also once we get our plan is being really transparent in how we do our plan and reporting every year on how it's going will also be a big part of this. I think you asked about destination marketing, so that is something that we're also. Um, I'm excited to have a plan for that too because there already are some businesses on the coast that are climate-friendly, so that could look like possibly its own itinerary. There's also the West Coast electric highway. Um, There are a few gaps, but EV charging stations from Washington down to California, of course, running through Oregon, talking about some of that, and then also that call to action. So what can visitors do to be climate-friendly in our destination? Um, There's some volunteerism opportunities. For example, we have the Oregon King Tides Project, and that is you know getting locals and visitors to take photos before and during our extreme king tides you know wave events because a lot of that research is showing us what sea level rise will look like in certain communities because we see it you know three times a year during king tides so again looking at these different opportunities of hey where could you stay that's climate friendly where could you eat what could you do but again that consumer messaging being inspiring and interesting and intriguing and not being scary because ultimately at the end of the day, it is our job to inspire visitation to the coast. So that'll be exciting.
0: And to inspire the right kind of visitor who supports the culture of the community, who supports the things that are important to you. As Kathy Ritter says, those are the best. That's the high value customer is the people who view your home with care, compassion, and, uh, conservation. So. Exactly. Very very cool. Before we get to your bonus round question, how can listeners follow your work and tell us again about your podcast?
1: Yeah, so um anybody can check out our website, Oregon Coast Visitors Association or our LinkedIn, also Oregon Coast Visitors Association. That's where we post pretty frequently. And then yeah, podcast. So I have the big tourism podcast looking at interesting destination management solutions in the United States and abroad. And that lives on the American Shoreline podcast network. And hopefully this spring, I am launching another podcast with a colleague, Jane Connolly out of Spain, called the tasty solution, looking at culinary solutions to destination management challenges. So Two exciting things to look at for tourism nerds like myself.
0: All right. So your bio could lead us down so many paths for the bonus round question, but an experience that you had in the Peruvian Amazon during your undergrad years was, you say, the turning point in your professional identity and makes for an interesting case study of rural communities and large extractive industries. So tell us about that experience in the Peruvian Amazon.
1: The year was 2013. I'm sitting in an open room in front of a U-shaped table formation, trying to convince a panel of Amazonian chiefs that I was not an American spy. (laughs) <laughs> so it was great talking to you Bill, and I'll talk to you later <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> so <laughs> wow, yeah, that was a real moment, and it was probably one of the most stressful moments of my life, but also like really a cornerstone of identifying what drives me professionally and what my and where my personal passions meet so I um have a degree in international studies and I spent a year in South America, and part of that was doing research in the Peruvian Amazon um, in the Madre de Dios region. And what I was doing was I was trying to understand that Hunt Oil, which is an American oil company, what kind of promises they were making to these local communities in order to Mm -hmm. explore for oil and eventually get oil from this region. I always think of that experience because I remember being like, I was not that confident in my Spanish. I felt like such an imposter like imposter syndrome being like, who am I to be talking to these like Amazonian chiefs about this really intense issue. But what I found during that experience was it went really well. I was really able to connect with a lot of people there. And I really identified with a lot of their struggles of being in a rural community. I am also from a rural community here on the Oregon coast. Um, We don't have a lot of neighbors. It's harder to connect. And I think in that way, organize, and I realized how passionate I felt about that community and their ability to make decisions around their natural resources and their future. They were struggling with some of this short-term needs, long-term needs. And a lot of times those short-term ones are easier to make decisions around. And at the end of that experience, I did write a paper about, you know, what I had found. But it really left me thinking, wow, what if this happened on the Oregon Coast? Like, what if there was an industry that was having some negative Impacts to our rural community? Would we be able to organize? Would we be able to, you know? And of course, I came to find out that yes, that does happen on the Oregon coast. And so that's when I kind of stepped into some other, you know, watershed action groups. And then I found tourism. And when I was sent this job description, I was like, I would never work in tourism. And as I was reading that, I was living in Paris. I was like, tourists <laughs> are the worst. I would never want to. Yeah, and right. I like kept looking at this job description, and I was like, oh, it's really interesting. It's really kind of the behind the scenes of tourism. It's the community side, and so I've been in this role for almost four years, and I and I have found that that is what I'm so passionate about is working. You know, the Oregon coast is mostly rural communities. Is understanding their needs, understanding what they're going through, and seeing how the tourism industry can actually benefit our local livability, how it can benefit local businesses and fishermen in order to just keep up sustainability in the future of our coast. So sometimes when I get stressed out or I'm like, wow, this is so challenging. I think about me sitting in that room, just sweating, (laughs) just so nervous, trying to convince them that I was in fact a student just trying to do research. And I was not there to spy for the oil company and that you don't need to be an expert in order to have important conversations, anyone listening to this, you don't need to be a climate change expert to work on this. I think you just come as you are. And I think that everyone has a role. Every DMO has a role in this type of work, but it will look different.
0: And obviously your Spanish was good enough because otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation today, would we? (laughs) Yes,
1: yes, it did. It improved. That was definitely a confidence booster during that.
0: (laughs) Well, once again, Erica, listeners can find you through the Oregon coast website and learn more through your big tourism podcast on the American shoreline podcast network. Thanks so much for what you do. And I think those last few words were empowering. And that is that we don't have to be experts. We just have to have a passion for the place in which we live to make it better. And, and that's the first step. And if it's climate change that we address, it is. If it's one of the others, that's fine. But we can't disagree any longer that climate change is an existential threat to our industry and our way of life. And so uh, we look forward to updating your story in the years to come.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thank you. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers, this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's dmou.com. And thanks too to our sponsor, SearchWide Global, the premier executive search firm in the DMO space. Mike Gamble and his team uncover the talent out there that isn't looking, meaning the clients get a far richer candidate base from which to choose than just placing ads in pubs and online. If you're looking for a new opportunity or the perfect candidate, call them. You can learn more at searchwideglobal.com. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find links to our services for the DMO sector, links to the Z-News, our book destination leadership, our blog, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, plus over 80 past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.